shifts such a meager wage and mother jones can't help us now anyway Lay down your Bibles and pick up your guns. These words from recording artist Louise Mosery's song, The Battle of Blair Mountain, co-written with Mike Richardson, with vocal and banjo backup from Anna Uptain, echo the painful cry of thousands of West Virginia men and women who rose up against the coal companies that had them living in tents, starving, and working like slaves for the bituminous black gold that was filling the coffers of ruthless investors and politicians in the mining camps of Appalachia, in 1912. When the coal companies turned to eviction, threats, and finally murder to keep the miners down, the miners and their families, beaten and starving, had no choice but to lay down their Bibles and pick up their guns. The fight that ensued was, and still remains, the bloodiest labor conflict in American history, leaving hundreds dead, families broken, and all faith in government shattered. It is to those mine workers and their families and their descendants that this episode regarding this long-forgotten story is dedicated. Welcome to another episode from 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries. This one, the true story of the largest and deadliest labor uprising in American history. A story with as many twists and turns as West Virginia has country roads, hills, and hollows. Years ago, a singer and teller of tales named Tennessee Ernie Ford had a record called 16 Tons. A story about a coal miner's predicament that stated no matter how hard he worked or how much coal he shoveled, the odds were stacked against him and his family. His meager wages all went back to the company's store for food and clothing and rent, leaving he and his wife and kids owing money he hadn't even made yet to the coal company. I owe my soul to the company's store was the catchphrase to that song, and how true it was. In the late 1800s in West Virginia, it wasn't easy to be a coal miner. For starters, mining wasn't just a job. It was a way of life, and a hard way of life. You lived in a company town, bought all your food and supplies at the company store, were paid in company money called scrip. You sent your kids to the company school, read the company paper, obeyed the company-employed police, and so it went. Because the coal companies controlled every aspect of the miners' lives, they could do whatever they wanted, pay as little as they felt like, teach what they felt like, and trapped the miners in a cycle of bare-bones existence as they saw fit. And as if that wasn't bad enough, the job was extremely dangerous. Fatal accidents, including mine cave-ins, 
explosions, and poison gas releases were frequent. And if you survived those, illnesses such as black lung disease claimed the miners and their families alike. Living in a cloud of coal dust will kill you sooner or later. As the decades wore on, the owners of these coal companies in the U.S. kept raking in the profits and figured that the lives of the men doing all the hard work were expendable. When one dropped, there was always another ready to take his place, oftentimes his son. They started them as soon as they could pick up a shovel. In some parts of the country, the new union movement, called the United Mine Workers of America, UMWA, began to gain a foothold. But it was slow coming, like most other things, to the coal-rich hills of West Virginia. One reason for this was that the coal companies were willing to fight unions and progress, seeing them as a threat to their profits. And so, southwestern West Virginia, the beating heart of the coal industry, stayed mostly non-union. By around 1910, though, the pressure was building. The stakes were high, and so was the tension building between workers and their bosses. And that tension built and built until it eventually exploded into what is this day the largest armed surrection in the U.S. since the Civil War. For five days, from late August to early September 1921, in Logan County, West Virginia, some 10,000-plus armed coal miners confronted 3,000 better-armed lawmen and strike-breakers called the Logan Defenders, who were backed by coal mine operators. The miners had been trying to unionize the southwestern West Virginia coal fields. The lawmen, including the police and the paid guns, were trying to stop them. This pitched battle capped roughly 10 years of confrontations, which began in earnest in 1912, near Charleston, West Virginia, with the Paint Creek-Cabin Creek strike, the first major demonstration by pro-union workers. Coal miners were fed up with the low wages and the poor working conditions, loading tons of coal for weeks, months, years on end in the cramped, dark mines, only to find themselves deeper in debt at the end of each day. The miners demanded the right to unionize, the right to free speech and assembly, as guaranteed them in the U.S. Constitution, and the right to be paid accurately and in real U.S. dollars rather than companies' scrip. They were tired of being cheated out of their already meager wages. They were being paid by the ton, and having no access to scales, they had no choice but to take their earnings at the word of the company weighmen. Sixteen tons? Nah, that's only twelve today. I worked for a company that did that. They had a crooked manager who would tally our truck inventory at the beginning and end of each day, and every three days or so, I would come up short. That was taken out of my pay, which was in cash. I complained, but the company trusted him and not me, and we soon parted ways. I was still young and learning the ways of life and working for others the hard way. I found out a few years later that he had been caught. He was pocketing the difference. He was turning in a different tally than the one he showed me. He just lost his job, as I heard. I lost my faith in working for other people. I was just married, and I needed that money for rent. It was a good lesson learned. Trust no one but yourself. But that little episode amounts to nothing when you look at what these people in West Virginia were facing. When nearly 10,000 miners finally went on strike the first time in 1914, their protests were largely nonviolent. Until, that is, the mine operators called in the notorious Baldwin Feltz Detective Agency to break up the strike. Over 300 armed men descended on the area on behalf of Baldwin Feltz. 
Beatings were common. Sniper attacks and sabotage were also used. Miners were forcefully taken from their homes and tossed into the street to live in tents. Inside these tents, people were starving. One of these starving people was William H. Blizzard, born on September 19, 1892, in Cabin Creek, West Virginia. He was born to his parents, Timothy Blizzard and Sarah H. Blizzard, and his father, Timothy, was a coal miner. His mother, Sarah, was a strong supporter of the UMWA. At the age of 10, Bill became a coal miner and worked alongside his father. He soon would become a loyal member of the Union. He was cocky and self-confident, and his family's loyalty to the UMWA was very strong, and they would eventually get evicted from their home when Bill was only 10. After a tent camp was set up for evicted miners, it was shot up by armed guards, leaving him with a memory he'd never forget. They were left with nothing. No work, no home, no belongings, nothing. But they had spirit. Bill's mother, according to legend, found some strong friends with picks and crowbars and tore up part of the railroad in an attempt to halt the shooting of tent camps. At the age of 16, Bill was already a seasoned coal miner, and it has been stated Bill would fight at the drop of a hat, and sometimes he didn't need the hat. By 19, Bill was already a local leader of the UMWA and a fiercely loyal member. He would quickly go on to rise through the Union ranks, and when the Battle of Blair Mountain came, he would lead his army of red bandana-wearing miners against the combined might of federal and state troopers and well-armed mine operator thugs. The tent colonies were subject to a new tactic from the company goons. A heavily armored train that the miners called the Death Special was sent through the tent colony regularly, firing Gatling machine guns from flat cars and high-powered rifles at the tents. In a Senate committee investigation that followed, reported by the Wichita Times, one woman described her encounter with the train. Mrs. Annie Hill, who limped into the committee room, told how she shielded her three little children from the bullets by hiding them in the chimney corner of her little home at Holly Grove when the armored train made its appearance. She said she'd been shot through the limbs and the bullet had gone through the Bible and hymn book on the parlor table. Martial law was declared. Mary Harris, Mother Jones, a feisty Union activist already in her 70s who had come to the area to help the miners, was arrested and imprisoned. She'd seen her share of life on the hard side, having lost her home in the Chicago fire and dedicated the remainder of her life fighting for the oppressed. She arrived at the beginning of the Troubles, lived with the minor families, helped them, and became their champion. She was handing out courage to miners and their families all over the country, in Colorado, Arizona, Pennsylvania, and doing all she could to help the families and encourage them to fight the mining companies by joining the UMWA union. Mother Jones worked in the thick of it, on the front lines, where she helped miners form locals along Paint Creek, just 20 miles from the state capital in West Virginia. When the union called a national strike in 1902, Mine owners in that area quickly signed, but the nearby New River Valley, they refused, bringing on armed mine guards from the Baldwin-Feltz Detective Agency to prevent their workers from organizing. Several gun battles followed. Mother Jones arrived at Stanford Mountain and saw a miner's wife weeping over her slain husband, his mattress wet with blood. In Mother Jones' autobiography, more of which follows in just a few minutes, Jones recounted, that in five other shacks that day, men lay dead. With this violence, the New River operators broke the strike 
setting a terrible precedent. A decade later, West Virginia mine owners again went against their northern counterparts when Paint Creek operators rejected a five-cent-per-ton wage increase and an eight-hour day for their workers. The miners put down their tools, and Mother Jones returned to organize other workers. The strike quickly spread to nearby Cabin Creek. Though pay an hour certainly motivated the miners, they were most angry that the company had taken away their basic freedoms. Almost all coal miners in West Virginia, 90%, lived in company towns, and operators, as previously discussed, used this system against the union, owning the workers' homes and paying them in scrip, redeemable only at the company's store, gave them greater power over their workers. Worse, the notorious Baldwin Feltz agents bullied miners and their families and threatened them with violence. Murder and rape were two of the tools they used to intimidate, and they used them often. Miners evicted from their shanties because of their union activity moved into canvas tents, and in May 1912, guards fired randomly into the tent colony at Holly Grove, West Virginia. Incredibly, no one was injured that time, but the miners decided to retaliate, shooting at the guards' headquarters in the town of Mucklow. The fighting started and continued back and forth. A battle on July 26, 1912, left a reported six miners and four guards dead. And in August, Mother Jones exhorted a crowd of striking miners to arm themselves and gather in Charleston to pressure the governor to act. On February 7, 1913, company mine guards attacked Holly Grove again. Riding by the camp in an armored train car, they dubbed the Bull Muth Special. They fired rifles and Gatling machine guns into the tents. Sesco Estep emerged from his nearby cabin to yell to his wife to take their baby into the cellar when a bullet tore through his face, killing him. The attack made the front page of newspapers across the country. Governor Henry D. Hatfield, an ally of the mine owners, and there were Hatfields on both sides of this conflict, declared martial law, and the National Guard confiscated weapons and arrested 200 miners. No mine guards were arrested. Hatfield then brokered a settlement that would allow union organizers in the towns limit workdays to nine hours, and create a grievance process. But it did not end the mine guard system, giving the union recognition, or prevent strike leaders from being blacklisted. Under enormous pressure, UMWA District 17 leaders agreed, sparking anger among the rank and file. Unsatisfied with the union leadership's deal, miners Frank Keeney and Fred Mooney organized a series of wildcat strikes that forced operators to agree to an arbitration procedure and end the blacklist. The pair was ultimately elected president and secretary-treasurer of District 17. The Paint Creek-Cabin Creek strike had ended, with 10 guards and 12 miners killed in the fighting. I took the time to study upon Mother Jones, whose life and deeds on behalf of the poor and disadvantaged is heralded usually only by progressives today who keep her story alive. A San Francisco magazine named after her still touts progressive philosophy, and although I am not at all in their camp, I think they picked a fighter in her, and in my stories I give the facts and let the chips fall where they may. In Mother Jones' autobiography, I was surprised to see that she had traveled everywhere on behalf of the UAMW and was in the middle of dozens of disputes, from Arizona and Colorado to Pennsylvania and West Virginia, and witnessed much of the violence and killing right alongside the displaced families whose lives were given hope by her very presence. 
This is an excerpt in her diary that applies to our story. I think you'll appreciate hearing parts of the story from someone who is there and involved. Pictures show her to be in her 70s or better, always dressed in black and often leading the marches and protests and holding a sign in state after state that she traveled to. And she was always on the move. Here are some portions of her accounts, first from 1912 on Paint Creek, and in episode 2 from the Blair Mountain War in 1920 and the aftermath. She writes, One morning when I was west, working for the South Pacific Machinists, I read in the paper that the Paint Creek Coal Company would not settle with their men and had driven them out into the mountains. I knew that Paint Creek country. I had helped the miners organize that district in 1904, and now the battle had to be fought all over again. I canceled my speaking dates in California, tied up all my possessions in a black shawl. I liked traveling light, and went immediately to West Virginia. I arrived in Charleston in the morning, went to a hotel, washed up, and got my breakfast early in order to catch the one local train a day that goes into Paint Creek. The train wound in and out among the mountains, dotted here and there with the desolate little cabins of miners. From the brakeman and the conductor of the train, I picked up the story of the strike. It had started on the other side of Kanawha Hills in a frightful district called Russia, which was Cabin Creek. Here the miners had been peons for years, kept in slavery by the guns of the coal company and by the system of paying in scrip so that a miner never had any money should he wish to leave the district. He was cheated of his wages when his coal was weighed, cheated in the company store where he was forced to purchase his food, charged an exorbitant rent for his kennel in which he lived and bred, docked for school tax and burial tax, and physician, and for protection, meaning the gunman who shot him back into the mines if he rebelled. No one was allowed in the Cabin Creek District without explaining his reason for being there to the gunman who patrolled the roads, all of which belonged to the coal company. The miners finally struck. It was a strike of desperation. The strike of Cabin Creek spread to Paint Creek, where the operators decided to throw their fate in with the operators of Cabin Creek. Immediately, all civil and constitutional rights were suspended. The miners were told to quit their houses and told at the point of a gun. They established a tent colony in Holly Grove and Mossy, but they were not safe here from the assaults of the gunmen, recruited in the big cities from the bums and criminals who roamed the streets. To protect their women and children, who were being shot with poisoned bullets, whose houses were entered and roughhoused, the miners armed themselves, as did the early settlers against the attacks of wild Indians. Mother, it'll be sure death for you to go into the creeks, the brakeman told me. Not an organizer dares go in there now. They have machine guns on the highway, and those gunmen don't care whom they kill. The train stopped at Paint Creek Junction, and I got off. There were a lot of gunmen, armed to the teeth, lolling about. Everything was still, and no one would know of the bloody war that was raging in those silent hills except for the sight of those guns and the strange, terrified look on everyone's faces. Discover why critics are calling Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes the best film of the franchise. What a wonderful day! It's a jaw-dropping spectacle that demands to be seen on the biggest screen possible. I need to go. Hang on. It is our time. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Now playing only in theaters. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. 
I stood for a moment looking up at the everlasting hills, when suddenly a little boy ran screaming up to me, crying, "'Mother Jones, did you come to stay with us?' He was crying and rubbing his eyes with his dirty little fist. "'Yes, my lad, I've come to stay,' said I. A guard was listening. "'You have?' says he. "'I have,' says I. The little fellow threw his arms around my knees and held me tight. "'Oh, mother,' said he, "'they drove my papa away, and we don't know where he is, "'and they threw my mama and all the kids out of the house, "'and they beat my mama, and they beat me.' He started to cry again, and I led him away up the creek. All the way he sobbed out his sorrows, sorrows no little child should ever know, told of brutalities no child should ever witness. See, mother, I'm all sore where the gunman hit me. And he pulled down his cotton shirt and showed me his shoulders which were black and blue. The gunman did that? Yes, and my mama's worse than that. Suddenly he began screaming, The gunman, the gunman, mother, "'When I'm a man, I'm going to kill twenty gunmen for hurting my mama. "'I'm going to kill them dead. All dead.' "'I went up to the miners' camp in Holly Grove, "'where all through the winter, through snow and ice and blizzard, "'men and women and little children had shuddered in canvas tents "'that America might be a better country to live in. "'I listened to their stories. "'I talked to Mrs. Sevilla, whose unborn child had been kicked dead by gunmen "'while her husband was out looking for work. "'I talked with widows whose husbands had been shot by the gunmen with children whose frightened faces talked more effectively than their baby tongues. I learned how the scabs had been recruited in the cities, locked in boxcars, and delivered to the mines like so much pork. "'I think the strike is lost, mother,' said an old miner whose son had been killed. "'Lost? Not until your souls are lost,' said I. I traveled up and down the creek, holding meetings, rousing the tired spirits of the miners.' I got 3,000 armed miners to march over the hill secretly to Charleston, where we read a declaration of war to Governor Glasscock, who, scared as a rabbit, met us on the steps of the State House. We gave him just 24 hours to get rid of the gunman, promising him that hell would break loose if he didn't. He did. He sent the state militia in, who at least were responsible to society and not to the operators alone. One night in July, a young man, Frank Keeney, came to me. "'Mother,' he said, "'I've been up to Charleston trying to get someone to go up to Cabin Creek, "'and I can't get anyone to go. "'The national officers say they don't want to get killed. "'Boswell told me you were over here in the Paint Creek, "'and that perhaps you might come over into the Cabin Creek district.' "'I'll come up,' says I. "'I've been thinking of invading that place for some time. "'I knew all about Cabin Creek, old Russia. "'Labor organizer after organizer had been beaten into insensibility.' thrown into the creek, tossed into some desolate ravine. The creek ran with the blood of brave men, of workers who had tried to escape their bondage. Where can we hold our meetings? I asked. I don't know, Mother. The company owns every bit of dust for twenty square miles about, and the guards arrest you for trespassing. Is there an incorporated village anywhere near? Exdale, said he, is free. Bill a meeting for me there Tuesday night. "'Get the railway men to circulate the bills. "'Monday night, a fellow by the name of Ben Morris, "'a national board member, came to me and said, "'Mother, I understand you are going up to Cabin Creek tomorrow. "'Do you think that is wise?' "'It's not wise,' said I, "'but it's necessary. "'Well, if you go, I'll go,' said he. "'No, I think it is better for me to go alone. 
"'You represent the national office. "'I don't. "'I'm not responsible to anyone. "'If anything happens and you are there, "'the operators might sue the union for damages. "'I go as a private citizen. "'All they can do to me is put me in jail. "'And I'm used to that.' "'He left me and went directly to the governor "'and told him to send a company of militia "'up to Cabin Creek as I was going up there. "'Then he got the sheriff to give him a bodyguard, "'and he sneaked up behind me. "'At any rate, I did not see him or the militia on the train, "'nor did I see them when I got off. "'In Exdale, a sympathetic merchant let me stay in his house "'until the meeting began. "'When I got off the train, two or three miners met me. "'Mother,' they said, "'do you know there is a detective along with you? "'He's behind you now, the fellow with the red necktie. "'I looked around. I went up to him. "'Isn't your name Corcoran?' said I. "'Why, yes,' said he, surprised. "'Aren't you the Corcoran who followed me up New River in the strike of 1902? "'You were working for the Chesapeake and Ohio Railroad and the coal company then.' "'Why, yes,' said he. "'But you know people change.' "'Not sewer rats,' said I. "'A sewer rat never changes.' "'That night we held a meeting. "'When I got up to speak, I saw the militia that the national organizer had had the governor send. "'The board member was there.' He had made arrangements with the local chairman to introduce him. He began speaking to the men about being good and patient and trusting to the justice of their cause. I rose. Stop that silly trash, said I. I motioned him to a chair. The men hollered, Sit down, sit down. He sat. Then I spoke. You men have come over the mountains, said I. Twelve, sixteen miles. Your clothes are thin. Your shoes are out at the toes. "'Your wives and little ones are cold and hungry. "'You have been robbed and enslaved for years, "'and now Billy Sunday comes to you "'and tells you to be good and patient "'and to trust the justice? "'What silly trash to tell to men "'whose goodness and patience "'has cried out to a deaf world. "'I could see the tears in the eyes "'of those poor fellows. "'They looked up into my face as much as to say, "'My God, Mother, have you brought us a ray of hope?' "'Someone screamed. "'Organize us, Mother.' Then they all began shouting, Organize us! Organize us! March over to that dark church on the corner, and I will give you the obligation, said I. The men started marching. In the dark, the spies could not identify them. You can't organize those men, said the board member, because you haven't the ritual. The ritual, hell, said I. I'll make one up. They have to pay $15 for a charter, said he. I will get them their charter said I. Why, those poor wretches haven't fifteen cents for a sandwich. All you care about is your salary, regardless of the destiny of these men. On the steps of the darkened church, I organized those men. They raised their hands and took the obligation to the union. Go home from this meeting, said I. Say nothing about being a union man. Put on your overalls in the morning. Take your dinner buckets and go to work in the mines and get the other men out. They went to work. Every man who had attended that meeting was discharged. That caused the strike, a long, bitter, cruel strike. Bullpens came, flags came, the militia came. More hungry, more cold, more starving, more ragged than Washington's army that fought against tyranny were the miners of the Kanawha Mountains. And just as grim, just as heroic. Men died in those hills that others might be free. One day a group of men came down to Exdale from Red Warrior Camp to ask me to come up there and speak to them. 
Thirty-six men came down in their shirt sleeves. They brought a mule and a buggy for me to drive in with a little miner's lad for a driver. I was to drive in the creek bed, as that was the only public road, and I could be arrested for trespass if I took any other. The men took the shorter and easier way along the C&O tracks, which paralleled the creek a little way above it. Suddenly, as we were bumping along, I heard a wild scream. I looked up at the tracks along which the miners were walking. I saw the men running, screaming as they went. I heard the whistle of bullets. I jumped out of the buggy and started to run up to the track. One of the boys screamed, "'God, mother, don't come. They'll kill—' "'Stand still,' I called. "'Stand where you are. I'm coming.' When I climbed up into the tracks, I saw the boys huddled together, and around a little bend of the tracks, a machine gun and a group of gunmen. "'Oh, mother, don't come,' they cried. "'Let them kill us, not you.' "'I'm coming, and no one's going to get killed,' said I. I walked up to the gunmen and put my hand over the muzzle of the gun. Then I just looked at those gunmen, very quiet, and said nothing. I nodded my head for the miners to pass. "'Take your guns off that gun, you hellcat!' "'yelled a fellow called Mayfield, "'crouching like a tiger to spring at me. "'I kept my hand on the muzzle of the gun. "'Sir,' said I, "'my class goes into the mines. "'They bring out the metal that makes this gun. "'This is my gun. "'My class melt the minerals in furnaces "'and roll the steel. "'They dig the coal that feeds furnaces. "'My class is not fighting you, not you. "'They are fighting with bare fists and empty stomachs "'the men who robbed them and deprived their children of childhood. "'It is the hard-earned pay of the working class "'that your pay comes from. "'They aren't fighting you.' "'Several of the gunmen dropped their eyes, "'but one fella, this Mayfield, said, "'I don't care a damn. "'I'm going to kill every one of them, and you too.' "'I looked him full in the face. "'Young man,' said I, "'I want to tell you that if you shoot one bullet "'out of this gun at those men, "'if you touch one of my white hairs,' That creek will run with blood, and yours is going to be the first to crimson it. I do not want to hear the screams of those men, nor see the tears, nor feel the heartache of the wives and little children. These boys have no guns. Let them pass. So our blood is going to crimson the creek, is it? snarled Mayfield. I pointed to the high hills. Up there in the mountain I have five hundred miners. They are marching armed to the meeting I am going to address. If you start the shooting... They will finish the game. Mayfield's lips quivered like a tiger's deprived of its flesh. Advance, he said to the miners. They came forward. I kept my hand on the gun. The miners were searched. There were no guns on them. They were allowed to pass. I went down the side of the hill to my buggy. The mule was chewing grass, and the little lad was making a willow whistle. I drove on. That night I held my meeting. But there weren't any five hundred armed men in the mountains, just a few jackrabbits, perhaps, but I had scared that gang of cold-blooded hired murderers, and Red Warrior Camp was organized. The miners asked me to come up to Weinberg, a camp in the Creek District. Every road belonged to the coal company. Only the bed of the creek was a public road. At that time of the year, early spring, the water in the creek was high. I started for Weinberg, accompanied by a newspaper man named West, of the Baltimore Sun. We walked along the railroad track. Again I met the gunmen with their revolvers and machine guns. Mayfield was there too. You can't walk here, he growled. Private property. You don't mean to say you're going to make that old lady walk that creek in that ice-cold water, do you? 
said the reporter. It's too damn good for her. She won't walk it, he laughed. Won't I? said I. And she writes, I took off my shoes, rolled up my skirt, and walked the creek. At Weinberg, the miners, standing in the creek and on its edges, met me. With our feet in water, we held a meeting. Holding their shoes in their hands, their trousers rolled up, the men took the obligation to the Union. I was very tired. A miner stepped up to me and asked me to come to his cabin and have a dish of tea. "'Your house is on private property,' yelled a gunman. "'She can't go.' "'I'd pay rent,' he protested. "'Private property just the same. I'll arrest her for trespass if she steps out of the creek.' The struggle went on with increasing bitterness. The militia disarmed both gunmen and miners, but they were, of course, on the side of the Grand Dukes of the region. They forbade all meetings. They suspended every civil right. They became despotic. They arrested scores of miners, tried them in military court without jury, sentenced them to ten, fifteen years in the Moundsville prison. I decided to call the attention of the national government to conditions in West Virginia. I borrowed $100 and went out and built meetings in Cincinnati, Columbus, Cleveland, and from these cities I came to Washington, D.C. I had already written to Congressman W.B. Wilson to get up a protest meeting. The meeting was held in the armory and it was packed. Senators, congressmen, secretaries, citizens. It is usual to have star orators at such meetings who use parlor phrases. Congressman Wilson told the audience that he hoped they would not get out of patience with me, for I might use some language which Washington was not accustomed to hear. I told the audience what things were happening in West Virginia, proceedings that were un-American. I told them about the suspension of civil liberty by the military, of the wholesale arrests and military sentences. This is the seat of a great Republican form of government. If such crimes against the citizens of the state of West Virginia go unrebuked by the government, I suggest that we take down the flag that stands for constitutional government and run up a banner saying, This is the flag of the money oligarchy of America. The next day, by 12 o'clock, all the military prisoners but two were called down to the prison office and signed their own release. From Washington, I went to West Virginia to carry on my work. The day before I arrived, an operator named Quinn Morton, the sheriff of Kanawha County, Bonner Hill, deputies and guards, drove an armored train with Gatling guns through Holly Grove, the tent colony of the miners, while they were sleeping. Into the quiet tents of the workers, the guns were fired, killing and wounding the sleepers. One man rose and picked up a couple of children and told them to run for their lives. His feet were shot off. Women were wounded. Children screamed with terror. No one was arrested. Three days later, a mine guard, Fred Bobbitt, was killed in an altercation. Fifty strikers and their organizers were immediately arrested and without a warrant. I went to Boomer, where the organization is composed of foreigners, and I went to Longacre, getting each local union to elect a delegate who should appeal to the governor to put a stop to the military despotism. I met all these delegates in a church, and I told them how they were to address a governor. We took the train for Charleston. I thought it better for the delegates to interview the governor without me, so after cautioning them to keep cool, I went over to the hotel where they were to meet me after their interview. As I was going along the street, a big elephant called Dan Cunningham grabbed me by the arm and said, I want you. He took me to the Rower Hotel and sent for a warrant for my arrest. 
Later I was put on the C&O train and taken down to Pratt and handed over to the military. They were not looking for me, so they had no bullpen ready. So a Dr. Hansford and his wife took care of me and some organizers who were arrested with me. The next day I was put in solitary in a room guarded by soldiers who paced day and night in front of my door. I could see no one. I will give the military of West Virginia credit for one thing. They are far less brutal and cold-blooded than the military of Colorado. After many weeks we were taken before the judge advocate. The court had sent two lawyers to my bullpen to defend me, but I had refused to let them defend me in that military court. I refused to recognize the jurisdiction of the court to recognize the suspension of the civil courts. My arrest and trial were unconstitutional. I told the judge advocate that this was my position. I refused to enter a plea. I was tried for murder. Along with the others, I was sentenced to serve 20 years in the state penitentiary. I was not sent to prison immediately, but held for five weeks in the military camp. I did not know what they were going to do with me. My guards were nice young men, respectful and courteous, with the exception of a fellow called Lafferty, and another sewer rat whose name I have not taxed my mind with. Then from California came Aid, The great lion-hearted editor of the San Francisco Bulletin, Fremont Older, sent his wife across the continent to Washington. She had a talk with Senator Kearns. From Washington she came to see me. She got all the facts in regard to the situation from the beginning of the strike to my unconstitutional arrest and imprisonment. She wrote the story for Collier's Magazine. She reported conditions to Senator Kearns, who immediately demanded a thorough congressional inquiry. Someone dropped a Cincinnati post through my prison window. It contained a story of Wall Street's efforts to hush up the inquiry. If Wall Street gets away with this, I thought, and the strike is broken, it means industrial bondage for long years to come in the West Virginia mines. I decided to send a telegram via my underground railway to Senator Kearns. There was a hole in the floor of my prison cabin. A rug covered the hole. I lifted the rug and rang two beer bottles against one another. A soldier who was my friend came crawling under the house to see what was up. He had slipped me little things before, and I had given him what little I had to give. An apple, a magazine. So I gave him the telegram and told him to take it three miles up the road to another office. He said he would. It's fine stuff, mother, he said. That night when he was off duty, he trudged three miles up the road with the telegram and sent it. The next day in Washington, the matter of a congressional inquiry in the West Virginia mines came up for discussion in the Senate. Senator Goff from Clarksburg, who had stock in the coal mines of West Virginia, got up on the floor and said that West Virginia was a place of peace until the agitators came in. And the grandmother of agitators in this country, he went on, is that old Mother Jones. I learned from the governor that she is not in prison at all, but is only detained in a very pleasant boarding house. Senator Kearns rose. I have a telegram from this old woman of 84 in this very pleasant boarding house, said he. I will read it. To the astonishment of the senators and the press, he then read my telegram. They had supposed the old woman's voice was in prison with her body. From out the military prison walls of Pratt, West Virginia, where I have walked over my 84th milestone in history, I send you the groans and tears and heartaches of men, women, and children as I have heard them in this state. From out these prison walls, I plead with you for the honor of the nation, 
to push that investigation, and the children yet unborn will rise and call you blessed. Then the Senate took action. A senatorial commission was appointed to investigate conditions. One hour after this decision, Captain Sherwood of the militia, a real man in every sense of the word, aside from the uniform, said to me, Mother, the governor telephoned me to bring you to Charleston at once. You have only 25 minutes before the train comes. What does the governor want? said I. He didn't say. When I got to the governor's office, I had to wait some time because the governor and the mine owners were locked behind doors holding a secret conference as to how they should meet the senatorial investigation. Governor Hatfield had succeeded Governor Glasscock, and he told me, when he finally admitted me, that he had been trying to settle the strike ever since he'd been elected. I could have settled it in 24 hours, said I. He shook his head mournfully. I would make the operators listen to the grievances of their workers. I would take the $650,000 spent for the militia during this strike and spend it on schools and playgrounds and libraries that West Virginia might have a more highly developed citizenry, physically and intellectually. You would then have fewer little children in the mines and factories, fewer later in jails and penitentiaries, fewer men and women submitting to conditions that are brutalizing and un-American. The next day he attended the convention of the miners that was in session in Charleston. I saw him there and I said to him, Governor, I am going out of town tomorrow. Where are you going? I'm going to consult a brain specialist. My brain got out of balance while I was in the bullpen. Didn't you know I was a doctor? said he. Your pills won't do me any good, I said. One day when I was in Washington, a man came to see me who said General Elliot had sent him to me. General Elliot was the military man who had charge of the prisoners sentenced to the penitentiary in the court-martial during the strike. Never would I forget that scene on the station platform of Pratt when the men were being taken to Moundsville, their wives screaming frantically, the little children not allowed to kiss or caress their fathers. Neither the screams nor the sobs touched the stone heart of General Elliot. And now General Elliot had sent a friend to me to ask me to give him a letter endorsing him for Congress. And did General Elliot send you? Yes. Then tell the General that nothing would give me more pleasure than to give you a letter, but it would be a letter to go to hell and not to Congress. In the fall of 1912, I went to Elksdale, West Virginia. A strike had been going on in that section of the coal country for some time. A weary lull had come in the strike, and I decided to do something to rouse the strikers and the public. I called six trusty American men to me, told them to go up along the creeks on either side of which mining camps are located, and to notify all the miners that I wanted them in Charleston at one o'clock Tuesday afternoon. They must not bring any clubs or guns with them. Tuesday afternoon, at a prearranged place, I met the boys in Charleston. The camps had turned out in full. I told the lads to follow me, and they did, through the streets of Charleston with a banner that said, Nero fiddled while Rome burned. Nero was the governor who fiddled with the moneyed interest while the state was going to ruin. Another banner was addressed to certain gunmen whom the workers particularly hated because of his excessive brutality. It said, If G is not out of town by six o'clock, he will be hanging to a telegraph pole. The reason that he did not hang was because he was out of town before six. We gathered on the state house grounds. 
I went into the governor's office and requested him politely to come out, as there were a lot of Virginia's first families giving a lawn party outside, and they wanted him to talk to them. I could see that he wanted to come out, but he was timid. Mother, he said, I can't come with you, but I'm not as bad as you might think. Come, said I, pulling his coattails. He shook his head. He looked like a scared child, and I felt sorry for him. A man without the courage of his emotions. A good, weak man who could not measure up to a position that took great strength of mind. A character of granite. From a platform on the statehouse steps, I read a document that we had drawn up, requesting the governor to do away with the murderous Baldwin Feld's guards and gunmen. We asked him to reestablish America and American traditions in West Virginia. I called a committee to take the document into the statehouse and place it reverently on the governor's table. I then spoke to the crowd and in conclusion said, Go home now. Keep away from the saloons. Save your money. You're going to need it. What will we need it for, mother? Someone shouted. For guns, said I. Go home and read the immortal Washington's words to the colonists. He told those who were struggling for liberty against those who would not heed or hear to buy guns. They left the meeting peacefully and bought every gun in the hardware stores of Charleston. They took down the old hammer locks from their cabin walls. Like the Minutemen of New England, they marched up the creeks to their homes with the grimness of the soldiers of the Revolution. The next morning, alarms were ringing. The United States Senate called attention to the Civil War that was taking place but 350 miles from the Capitol. The sleepy eye of the national government looked upon West Virginia. A senatorial investigation was immediately ordered to inquire into the blight that was eating out the heart of the coal industry. Once again, the public was given a chance to hear the stifled cry of the miners in their eternal struggle. One night I went with an organizer named Scott to a mining town in the Fairmont district where the miners had asked me to hold a meeting. When we got up the car, I asked Scott where I was to speak, and he pointed to a frame building. We walked in. There were lighted candles on an altar. I looked around in the dim light. We were in a church, and the benches were filled with miners. Outside the railing of the altar was a table. At one end sat the priest with the money of the union in his hands. The president of the local union sat at the other end of the table. I marched down the aisle. "'What's going on?' I asked. "'Holding a meeting,' said the president. "'What for?' "'For the union, mother. We rented the church for our meetings.' I reached over and took the money from the priest. Then I turned to the miners. Boys, I said, this is a praying institution. You should not commercialize it. Get up, every one of you, and go out in the open fields. They got up and went out and sat around a field while I spoke to them. The sheriff was there, and he did not allow any traffic to go along the road while I was speaking. In front of us was a schoolhouse. I pointed to it and I said, "'Your ancestors fought for you to have a share in that institution over there. "'It's yours. See the school board, and every Friday night hold your meetings there. "'Have your wives clean it up Saturday morning for the children to enter Monday. "'Your organization is not a praying institution. It's a fighting institution. "'It's an educational institution along industrial lines. "'Pray for the dead, but fight like hell for the living.'"
hoping to God that the timber is home. Like my father before me, and so I know we live only to harvest coal, to harvest coal. About as shallow as a grave, we're living in shanty towns. We ain't got no say. Fourteen-hour shifts, such a meager wage, and Mother Jones can't help us now anyway. Stay tuned in one week for part two of the Battle of Blair Mountain, 
where we'll cover the four-day battle between 10,000 miners against the combined forces of the state police, the coal company's hired guns, and the U.S. Army, which sent federal troops, planes, and bombs into West Virginia on the side of the coal companies to quell the disturbance and break up the miners' resistance. We'll continue Mother Jones' first-hand account of the events leading up to the battle, as well as the trial that followed the war, in which dozens of miners were tried for treason and murder, a trial that should have been doing just the opposite and trying the coal companies and their hired thugs. We'll also update you on the situation today as coal companies have been trying for years to get rights to strip mine Blair Mountain by tearing off the top half of the mountain, while activists have been fighting to make it an historic shrine. You'll learn about a very unusual baseball game that took place in Charleston, West Virginia, during which a team of nine union miners, all out on bail and each on trial for murder or treason, played their hearts out to gain attention to their plight, while their wives lobbied state officials and appealed to the public for fairness. Thanks for joining us at 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries. Someday we'll have a guest join us for a debate on unions, but it's hard to mount any kind of an argument against the need for them 100 years ago in West Virginia. If you're railing against them today, keep in mind that it was the fat cats, lawyers, and politicians all the way up to the White House that brought this about all those years ago. We're supported in part by our sponsors and in part by our patrons of the arts at Patreon, so please stop by patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com, forward slash 1001 Stories Network, and pledge a few dollars monthly to keep us rolling. Thank you. That's patreon.com, forward slash 1001 Stories Network. And keep those great reviews coming to all of our 1001 shows. Thanks to each and every one of you that takes the extra few minutes to do those reviews at Apple Podcasts. Thanks, everyone. We'll be back with a riveting part two next week.